Hello everybody, my name is Anwar Osborne. I'm a physician and I am so excited to present to you guys a, another episode of Cooler Talk with Mecca. Again, these are pretty in-depth, spontaneous conversations that Dr. Emeka Egbike had on the streets of Atlanta with patients that navigate our healthcare system in one way or another. And through that lens, we try to talk about the social determinants of health with uh, the noted anthrop anthropologist, Dr. Basan Salhi. And uh, the three of us kind of talk about what are the trials and tribulations that uh, happen to a person who is really with unstable housing and just trying to get a job. And it really helps us to kind of look at our current jobs and our situations through the lens of someone who is a little bit less fortunate than us. And, you know, amazingly, this episode was done all by uh, Zoom. You know, six months ago, probably not a whole lot of people knew that much about Zoom. Now we're all super familiar with Zoom. I know we're not supposed to really like date the episodes, but this one was done during this uh, coronavirus pandemic. The discussion, that is. The interview, though, took place over the summer where Ameka was handing out bottles of water in exchange for just a conversation. Uh, obviously, all of this was determined to be IRB exempt as it counts as journalism. It's just one person in a narrative sense. And uh, obviously, the person who's being recorded is fully aware that we were going to create a podcast. Uh, and the uh, good news is, is that this person was very excited to talk. The bad news is uh, there was a little bit of audio difficulty uh, in that there's some background noise and a little bit of wind on a couple of the snippets. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we did the best we could. Also, we had to record this uh, over uh, internet audio. Uh, and so there are a little bit of challenges with that, but I think it sounds pretty good. And uh, I hope you uh, find it uh, enjoyable and insightful. And it's not all about coronavirus, but we do touch a little bit on this up front. In any case, uh, with all that, I bring to you another episode of Cooler Talk with Mecca. How, uh, how do you think this um, isolation stuff is affecting like the people that um, you had been talking to? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I see the same, so I still walk to work. Uh, I see the same people that I've talked to or I've tried to talk to. Um, they, I mean, I, they seem pretty unaffected. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't really tell what it is. Um, it's funny. <laughs> uh, one of them actually like ran up to me and, and uh, you know, wanted to give me a hug on the streets. And, and I did, but, you know, given all this social distancing thing I, I tried to kind of explain it but uh, she's so sweet so um, but <laughs> she's 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 sweet uh, but uh, i don't know I, I i haven't really seen any effect in terms of the people that i i know at least um of course in the ed you don't see our, our regular folks anymore yeah yeah like they um they're scared they got the message there's more people under the bridge now with the uh Mm -hmm. Like what, what, what is that about? So I've seen, at least I know two bridges around here, the, the really long one where they've kind of gated off, essentially cleared everyone out. Uh, I've seen a few people coming back and, and sleeping there. Uh, and then the one that I know, I, or I guess I walk through 
uh, on a daily basis, which is uh, right behind Grady uh, going to Memorial. And it's about the same amount of people, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I think they just might not have a place to go or feel uncomfortable staying at the shelters, given the whole coronavirus situation. I mean, you're more than likely, um, you know, with that many people staying in a shelter versus, you know, under the bridge, you have uh, maybe three or four of the people, at least that I've seen, that are pretty far away from you. Uh, that's my only guess. The... Um Social workers are saying that, you know, not a lot of shelters are taking people. So they kind of have a situation where it's like nobody in and nobody out. So like you keep your bed for like the day or something like that. Yeah, I think that they're in a difficult situation from what I understand is that they have, you know, they're, they're trying to shelter people and do the things that they normally do. But at the same time, they're trying to protect the people that they do have. And so... I know that some of them have had, um, you know, that folks are like sleep, you know, they're trying to do things if they can't keep people six feet apart um, of also reinforcing things where like people are sleeping like, um, you know, uh, feet to head, like head to feet. I don't know what that's called, but um, such that they're like their, their faces are not aligned so that they can't um, transmit the virus. But I also, you know, I suspect, that a lot of people are also having a hard time potentially sort of making ends meet. I know that there's been some confusion about, you know, um, the freezes on, um, on evictions, but I, you know, people have had a, a difficult time in Atlanta in general, sort of procuring housing um, and having stable housing. And I, I can't imagine that the situation has gotten better for them um, during these times. So, so Ameka. Let's start by uh, seeing if you remember talking to this guy who was, it sounds like he was under the Bell Street Bridge, the one that was going to Memorial. Am I right? The hardest part about living right there. Uh, if, if you're homeless, I don't know if there's an easier place. Right. Um, he was actually wearing like, you know, collared shirt and some jeans. He was sitting at a park bench just uh, kind of appearing he's waiting for somebody. Uh, I was strolling down with my little cooler, so I decided to talk with him. And then as we got to talking, I was realized, oh, okay. Um, he told me he was living in this sort of um, community home type thing that was uh, actually closer to Grady, uh, but he was actually looking for work. You know, one of the things he talked about, and uh, maybe Dr. Sala, you could, you could help us uh, with this, was he was talking about donating plasma. So that's not that's not to be used as a um, as an exam or a checkup or something. Right. But at the same time, if there's anything in your blood, how many people uh, the emergency department setting would you would you guess that you've seen that uh, get their income from donating plasma? You know, um, I definitely think it's common, not just for people who are unstably housed or potentially are experiencing homelessness, but people who uh, are looking for some kind of supplemental income um, right. to sort of bridge them. I, you know, I don't have exact numbers, um, but I have definitely seen people, um, it's, you know, it's not uncommon for me, like once every maybe shift or a couple of shifts for somebody to kind of mention uh, that they have donated plasma, or if they're being treated for something, to sort of also ask, well, is it okay for me? I was planning on donating plasma 
tomorrow or in a couple of days, is this going to prevent me from doing it? You certainly don't make enough money um, donating plasma to, because of the regulations on how long you can do it and, um, and the amount that people get paid. It certainly is not enough for it to be a sustainable income by any means. Um, but I think a lot of people sort of use it as, um, as a bridge if they're able to get the plasma centers. Uh, evidently, the amount that you can get per donation is somewhere between 20 and $50. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know it's pretty popular among like college students, uh, really? but again, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's an easy way to make, uh, you know, a few dollars to 20 to 50, like we were saying, especially if you're still kind of looking for a job while going to, to school. Wow. Absolutely. And it's, you know, um, it, it's not, again, like it, it's a, it's a fair amount of money, but I think considering, um, you know, if you think about like the amount of time that it takes, the potential toll on your body that it take that it also takes if you're doing it regularly you know i think 20 to 50 dollars is probably an underpayment um but also again you know you certainly can't do it. it's not enough to actually sustain you um for for anything other than like maybe a little bit of supplemental income i know from my personal experience in the emergency department uh patients a lot of times will donate to their own detriment meaning that like they'll mm-hmm. go more often uh, then it's recommended by the center and they'll show up dehydrated. That's probably happened four or five times in my 12 years, you know? You know, I agree. And I just wonder also, it makes me think of how many people that we're seeing who aren't either disclosing or we're just not getting that history. But also, you know, how many people are just sort of writing it out because they know that, you know, I, I'm doing this, I feel bad, it'll get better. And they're not actually coming to the emergency department um, to get treated. So, and it could be that they're not disclosing just because they, they don't want us to, you know, they think that we're going to do something that will stop them from going. Because mm-hmm. um, I've never had that experience, but that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times they'll end up in the lower acuity areas because that's where a lot of the mild dehydration goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in, in, you know, where we work is so acute that you know, a lot of times residents don't get to see those people, but, but they're out there and they'll donate sometimes, you know, three or four times a month, which is not necessarily recommended. So. Oh yeah. I've definitely met people who try to go like maybe once a week um, if they're able to. Um, so that's, that's definitely when I've talked to people in detail about it, that we're doing it regularly. I think that they um, have said that they've gone as long, as frequently as once a week. After you started talking to him about the donation stuff. He really talked a lot about his difficulty in finding a job that would be sustainable. With the rate of pay, you can't, it's hard to commit to eight, nine, 10 bucks an hour. Do, do you remember much about you know, the, the, the ins and outs of that conversation? Uh, I remember he was so passionate about uh, just his journey. Uh, we talked a lot about this, of course, the stigma of homelessness and how uh, you can go apply for a job once they, they find out that you're homeless or you have, you're not living anywhere currently or you're living with somebody and you don't actually have your own place. Uh, then, you know, there's the conversation kind of trails off there and they end up getting turned away. Um, you know, he was going from job to job um, asking for uh, or the jobs were asking about different drug tests, different uh, kind of items that he just couldn't get or, or have. 
Um, so he, he was going through a lot. Now, what will that something fit with your needs? Will it take care of your needs, your situation, your circumstances, and put you in a better situation? It's hard to say. I don't think it will. Yeah. Uh, it'll frustrate you. You know. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It has that type of result. And uh, and like I say, even a you know, even the most pious religious person is is not going to put up with so much. You know. I mean, I think what's really, um, you know, there's a lot there. I think when people are going sort of through these drug tests and documentation, um, I, I think what's really important to sort of think about is that what people are sort of trying to prove is that you are, um, with the drug test, is that you are uh, potentially reliable or um or worthy, or you have some kind of good character. They're trying to corroborate that information. And we have sort of a general stigma um, that people who use drugs are, in fact, do not have any of those sort of desirable characteristics, which is what's kind of interesting about that is that we know from all of the available evidence that rates of drug use are probably actually higher um, in people who are employed and in higher income than people who... Um, um, are actually like sort of uh, living in um, in poverty and yet hold on to that stigma with a fierceness. But I think what's um, difficult is when you're also homeless is that that kind of comp or you're, you know, you're struggling um, with like finding a job or you, you know, you've kind of gone from job to job um, that those those stigmas are compounded, that if people have already, you know, if you've already disclosed that you're homeless, then people, regardless of a drug test or not, probably don't give you an opportunity that they think that you're probably homeless because you have either a severe psychiatric illness or because you're using drugs. And they kind of assume that you're not going to be a reliable member of, of the team or that you're not going to be somebody of, of good character, that they kind of just, um, ascribe all of those bad moral attributes to you. I, I can count on two fingers the amount of times I have had a drug test. <laughs> like, yeah. like one time about 13 years ago and then one time five years before that as soon as I started. But then, you know, you talk to some of the environmental services folks and they're getting tested like annually. And I think something else that um, we might not think about is some of the obstacles that uh, some of these people have in just getting in like a drug test. So they have to go to a lab all across the city. Uh, they have to take a MARTA and send an all-day affair. Uh, they might not be able to afford that MARTA card, uh, this and that. So there's a lot that um, I think uh, that they go through that we, we don't think about uh, too often. Yeah, he actually said he went to get a drug test and then they yeah. messed up his paperwork and ended up getting a work physical in Apparently the drug test is okay, but he still fails the work physical and can't get uh, a job. Uh, this, uh, what we call, it's called a, a plunk, uh, something for uh, different companies uh, use this clinic yeah. for employment, pre-employment, pre whatever. Yeah. And so I go in there and I say, I'm here to take a drug screen real quick, in and out, you know, just pissing the cup and kind of go. Okay. And they send the results off. And so they tell me, oh, you're here for employment physical. Oh, physical, yeah. 
So I said, no, no, I suppose it's just pissing the cup and I suppose it don't. <laughs> she said, no, Mr. Crab, we got the paperwork right here, da 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 And she explained to me, this is uh, your job sent you to get this. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And she said, we'll be doing this first. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't think nothing of it. I said, this is a bunch of mess. Yeah. And so I just went along with it. Do you believe that I failed the pre-employment physical? They said that something was wrong with my heart. Yeah, I remember his story. It was wild. I, I, I just couldn't believe what he was going through. You know, my heart went out to him. Uh, it sounded like he really tried hard. Uh, but despite it all, he, he just couldn't, couldn't get it. You know, one of the things I'd like to really get y'all's take on is the tension between the stereotype uh, that people who are homeless, like, quote, don't want to work versus the reality of having a job that pays between eight and ten dollars an hour or minimum wage, having that kind of job and that being a sustainable uh, type of lifestyle. He did talk about that. And I think very real terms, meaning that, you know, it costs money to be employed, right? You got to get there. You got to dress up. Um, and if you don't have a place to wash or the uh, necessities of toiletries, like it makes it very difficult to really apply the amount of money you would get paid to anything but that. So much, you know. yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a big demand on those lower paying jobs. People expect more. They want more. And, and rightly so. Yeah. But we're living in a situation where the have and have not generation but it's just not going to happen you know what i'm saying uh you know and, you know i think that that's such an important thing to to consider and to really think about you know if we're talking about we, we live in georgia where the the state minimum wage is actually lower than the federal minimum wage and so we default to sort of the the federal minimum wage when we're paying people so they don't really have any buffer on top of that or any rights on top of that you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, and uh, a person comes in frustrated. They just say a dishwashing job here. You'll only work me 25 hours a week, and you're going to work this other guy 25 hours. So we got to split what should be a 40-hour week. Yeah. <laughs> you understand right. what I'm saying? At eight, nine bucks an hour. Yeah. And then you run across this ignorant man. Um, but, you know, when I... Um I worked for a while as a volunteer case manager at the Peachtree and Pine Shelter, which has now been shuttered. And I can't tell you how many times people would come in and they'd say, you know, I got a job. I'm supposed to start, say, working as a construction worker. Well, working as a construction worker requires you to have some kind of, you know, like boots, for example, right? And th those work boots are not cheap. They're not readily available. They're not things that are, um, say, donated to shelters on a wide basis, because I think most people, when they're thinking about what homeless people sort of, quote unquote, need, um, those are not things that are high on their kind of priority list. And so you have to think about, you know, um, that they have to put in actually some amount of monetary investment that they probably don't have in order just to show up to work um, and to seem competent. And I, I think many jobs actually require those things. Um, 
that, you know, I think that a lot of people who are housed or already in stable positions or, you know, privileged enough to already have sort of wardrobe stocked up, you don't think about those things as investments. But in those cases where you're trying to kind of get off your feet, you may have lost a lot of your belongings because of the sort of the material conditions that you're living in. Um, you may have been victimized, your things may have been stolen. Um, and the, it, it's the, the curve to actually get back into kind of a stable um, situation is much more difficult. And it's perverse that it requires you to spend money so that you can get a job to make money. And even things like basic hygiene. Uh, I remember meeting a gentleman who uh, met a, another guy who ran a gym. And every day before the gym would open, uh, he would let him uh, into the gym to shower, uh, would have some toothpaste there for him. Uh, but it, it took some time for them to make that connection. And, you know, some people don't have like a, a gym where they can shower. Uh, so there's a lot um, that unfortunately uh, they, they, they go through and just to, just to work um, that we, some of us may take for granted. You know, and I also think one of the, um, you mentioned perverse, uh, perverse incentives. There is a somewhat of a perverse incentive that he talked about specifically in, um, you know, the example of him trying to get a dishwasher job. Mm -hmm. And he said that you could get a job that works 25 hours a week uh, washing dishes uh, for minimum wage. But, you know, he knows and the owner knows and the manager knows that, you know, it's a potentially 40 hour a week job. But because they want to save money on benefits, they make uh, they hire two people for 25 hours a week. And, you know, at that sort of rate, that's not really enough money to make the type of investments needed to keep that kind of job, particularly if you're starting with very little. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things that we often take for granted or has sort of happened maybe since the 1980s, probably longer, is that we've chipped away at people's rights to mobilize and to actually demand more of their employers. And we've sort of largely forsaken a lot of these um, a lot of people's labor that's, you know, in terms of like washing dishes or construction work or all of these other things that we need as a society to continue and for us to sort of go on with our day-to-day -day lives and take these things for granted. We need people who are actually sort of subsidizing those things. Um, and unfortunately, those people don't have, um, their rights are sort of not protected. And, and often, I think employers, for better or worse, sort of... Or, not for better, um, certainly for worse, take advantage of that. And a lot of people who actually have jobs are told that they are supposed to feel lucky or privileged um, to be in the position that they're in, even if they don't necessarily have the, the benefits or the income to actually be able to really have a livable wage. And so it really is, it's a, it's a terrible cycle, but it's, it's been going on for a really long time in the, in the United States. I always admire when people are hopeful and optimistic. And I think we all definitely should encourage people who are and, and really um, respect that. But I also at the same time think that it's very normal for people's um, emotions to fluctuate. And I think that being right. angry is a very normal reaction to a lot of what he has been through. And I think particularly in the ED, we encounter a lot of people who in fact are angry and 
a lot of their anger may or may not actually be directed at us. And I think we tend to actually have, I, I myself sort of have, we have visceral reactions when that anger is directed at us because I think that we sort of tend to be like, well, we're trying to help. And I certainly am not the, this is not my fault. Um, but I think it's important also for us to sort of reflect on that and to sort of say that a lot of the people that we're dealing with, that this is actually a natural response and that they, if they're going through a lot of these difficulties we, that we may or may not actually be privy to in such short encounters, um, that we should try not to hold that against them and should recognize that if we were in their position, we may react. Angry to too. Would, we might be angry too. Yeah. And, you know, just because you're angry in a particular situation with a snippet does not mean that you're an angry person. I'm sure that, you know, and because you're, because you're hopeful on, you know, day X does not mean that you are going to be not going to be despondent on day Y. And a lot of these feelings are fickle um, and that we should not really um, attribute them to some, some inherent flaw in the people that we're seeing. So, right. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, they're human just like us. They have every right to be angry. They have every right to be happy. Um, yeah. You know. But I, I think, um, you know, these points were, were probably really well illustrated in, uh, your, uh, conversation with him. Yeah, no, he was very optimistic, uh, despite, you know, everything that went on with the job and then the physical and then the drug test, uh, he was talking about uh, going somewhere else uh, to to look into a job that, you know, from a friend, from a friend, from a friend um, that he heard about. Well, you know, I appreciate your, your time and in sharing the story of this gentleman with us. Uh, and, you know, we got uh, several episodes up now and uh, they'll be... Uh, available to stream on all of your favorite devices. You know, again, we had to do this one uh, socially isolated, uh, so isolated that we didn't even use a video. So it's all audio. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, but tune in next time. Uh, so with uh, Dr. Sali and Dr. Agbike, I said it right this time. Yes. You got it, man. <laughs> all right. But thank you so much. All right. Thank, thank you, guys. Stay safe. Stay healthy. All right. Bye, you too. Bye.